Welcome to our inaugural edition of The Devil is in the Details. I'm your host, Tracy Pearson. Thanks for joining me. If you spent the last almost four years praying for November 2020, or if you are new to the club of Cancel the Chaos, welcome you with open arms. That would be a socially distanced open arms, because as I record this episode, Los Angeles is beginning day two of its second, albeit modified, shutdown due to a spike in COVID infections and hospitalizations. The last four years have found me puzzled by what we are not talking about and wanting to bring my perspective to the national conversation. This podcast brings a different spin on what is going on in the world and on the issues that I noodle when I have a moment. Sometimes I'm washing my hair in the shower. Other times I'm talking to folks on cable news who can't hear me from my living room remote location. I noodle a lot. I did it as a lawyer, a college professor, and a workplace investigator. I'm that person. You know the one. No matter what you're talking about, I have some familiarity with it because I did it for a job. I had a case about it. I studied it. I read a book about it. Or I lived it in some manner. Yes, friends, I'm that one. That person who you think it's impossible that she knows anything about this or that because she isn't that old. Like, what did she do? Start working when she was five? It turns out being that person is great when people ask you questions or want your opinion. Because I've been getting a lot of questions these days, I also created this podcast to do my part to help put things in perspective. Sometimes we'll talk about the headlines, and sometimes we'll talk about something that isn't on the radar of those reporting or commenting on what matters to all of us. Whatever the topic, you'll be hearing an authentic viewpoint. Sometimes we'll have guests to help us understand the issues, and when we move to a live broadcast, we'll take calls, like those great call-in shows that we remember our parents listening to. Facts are real, and they're important. In my career, I've learned if you miss a fact here or there, it really does make a difference. The world may feel like it's headline after headline, but the devil is really in the details. Thank you for joining me. Let's get started. I beg your pardon? Yes, today's show is all about pardons. Prior to 2016, we had two commonly known demarcations in time, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini, or in the year of our Lord. After the 2016 election, those demarcations gave way to P.T., pre-Trump, and after Trump. During that time known as P.T., White House policy, staff changes, and important government announcements came by White House press conferences and press releases. In the time of AT, it seems these conventions we relied on went the way of 8-track cassette tapes. Because a time of normalcy seems too long ago, let me refresh your recollection. White House press conferences were events in the White House where a person known as the White House press secretary, dressed in gray or another neutral color, stood in front of reporters in a room the Brady Press Briefing Room, named in honor of former press secretary James S. Brady, who was seriously injured by bullets intended for then-President Ronald Reagan. The White House press secretary made simple announcements and answered questions, all without insulting the reporters in front of him or her. The biggest crisis that happened usually was if a press secretary moved a news organization seating. The White House correspondents are superstitious folk. In reality, the White House correspondents respect tradition. Press conferences happen daily. 
Press releases, in contrast, were documents written on paper. They contained information that was spelled correctly, grammatically correct, and conveyed with a range of intelligent vocabulary. Those documents were put on the White House website. The official POTUS and press secretary Twitter accounts would tweet a link, maybe a sparing comment. Journalists were deemed so important to our democratic republic, the right to a free press was codified in the Bill of Rights of our federal constitution and the First Amendment. These professionals would use these press conferences and these reliable documents to report information to the American people. This was the way we operated, and it worked well. In our time AT, after Trump, the White House press briefing was taken away from journalists by Trump in a punitive measure that doubled as a way to avoid accountability. If you can't ask questions, you can't get answers. Press releases became fodder for political commentators like Rachel Maddow, for good reason, for their inability to spell words properly, like multiple spellings of Theresa, as in Theresa May, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom. In the place of these important methods of communication came the presidential tweet from a personal Twitter account, no less. Besides the cray posts from Trump claiming to have won the election, then possibly the closest thing will probably get to a concession speech. This past week, we learned that Trump pardoned Michael Flynn on November 25th, the day before Thanksgiving. Flynn's the guy who retired a year early from the military where he served as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency to avoid being fired by then President Obama. He counts as an achievement leading chance of lock her up at Trump gatherings. His company left something to be desired as he cavorted with Russia's Putin and Turkey's Erdogan. Against the advice of President Obama, and maybe in response to that advice, Trump appointed Flynn to the post of National Security Advisor. It was in that role that Flynn was caught lying to the FBI. That required former acting Attorney General Sally Yates to warn White House Counsel Don McGahn, who, as White House Counsel, tried to hold off dealing with the problem. I mean, who can blame him? He'd have to talk to his client. After over two weeks, Flynn was finally fired by Trump for the lame reason of lying to the vice president. And it was on February 13th, 2017, less than a month into the Trump presidency. It was so long ago. Flynn was charged by Robert Mueller, special prosecutor, and notably a Republican. Flynn pled guilty to lying. On the day Flynn was to be sentenced, the judge suggested Flynn might want to cooperate further to avoid an extended stay in federal prison. And after consulting with his attorneys, it seems Flynn thought the judge had a point. His sentencing was delayed. You're ready for more yet? After dodging the incarceration bullet, inexplicably, Flynn fired his capable lawyers, the experienced firm of Covington and Burling, and hired Sidney Powell. If she sounds familiar, she should. She's the lawyer who has been pursuing the non-existent election fraud cases and from which she was fired because of her wonky allegations that went even too far for Trump. One such allegation was that a secret cabal, which included Hugo Chavez, used voting machines to transfer votes away from Trump to Biden. Apparently, no one told Attorney Powell that Mr. Chavez died in March of 2013. It is probably worth noting that Flynn told the special prosecutor's office in 2018 that he had been contacted by persons connected to the Trump administration or Congress that could have affected his willingness to cooperate and the completeness of that cooperation. After bringing Powell on board, Flynn lied to the court about his lying to the FBI in what could be called an ill-timed and ill-informed demonstration of take-backsies. When that didn't work, 
the ethically bereft Department of Justice Attorney General, William Barr, announced Flynn's charges, despite Flynn's guilty plea, were being dropped. In an extraordinary move to prevent the manipulation of the legal system, Judge Sullivan hired a retired judge to represent him to challenge the Department of Justice's authority to withdraw those charges. In an eight to two ruling on August 31st, 2020, Judge Sullivan prevailed. The DC Court of Appeals declined to grant Barr's attempt to dismiss the charges on the basis that it was premature. That was a sound decision, by the way. While there are some exceptions, in order for an appellate court to determine an appeal, the court has to have a case that is ripe for consideration or final. And in this case, the appeals court did not have a case that was final. Judge Sullivan, presiding over the Flynn criminal matter, had yet to rule by sentencing Flynn, and therefore there was no final decision from which to appeal. We were waiting for that sentencing when the Department of Justice was forced to admit to the court that it altered documents submitted to the court for review. These documents involved handwritten notes by Peter Strozik, a former FBI official who Trump has repeatedly attacked. Attorneys for former FBI employees Andrew McCabe and Peter Strozik refused to vouch for the accuracy of those documents. Then, after President-elect Biden, President Obama's vice president, won the 2020 presidential election, after the states of Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania certified their votes, awarding their respective electoral college votes to President-elect Biden, after the General Services Administration Administrator, Emily Murphy, finally ascertained President-elect Biden as the winner of the 2020 presidential election, and after several press conferences and public appearances where we, in curious wonder, watched President-elect Biden as he behaved like a calm, respectful human, speaking in sentences, expressing empathy, wearing a mask, and advocating for same. Such was the four years of repeated verbally assaultive displays conditioning us to collectively brace every time the president opened his mouth to speak. Only after all of that, Trump sought to distract by pardoning Flynn on November 25th, 2020, the day before Thanksgiving. A Thanksgiving where Americans were told not to travel and to protect themselves and others from the virus that continues to attack our nation. Look, I'm probably the only person not in a twist about this pardon or almost any other pardon. I'll tell you why. But first, we're going to take a break. When we return, I'm going to send you to law school to receive your primer on pardons. Welcome back to The Devil is in the Details, where pardons are on the table. It's time for your law school lecture. A pardon is the equivalent of being officially forgiven by the government for whatever federal crime was committed. It's the highest, most formal form of no worries, but actually meaning it. Once one receives a pardon, it wipes the books of your conviction if you have one, or if you don't, you can't be charged for the crimes that preceded the pardon, no matter how bad they were. This power is enumerated in Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution as a presidential power. Remember, Article 1 is about Congress because our founding fathers believed that we were to be ruled by a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. A pardon by Article 2 applies only to federal crimes. It does not apply to state crimes. That is because the federal government and the state government are considered two separate sovereigns. In fact, when they drafted the Constitution, the intention was for a limited federal government to reserve any power or obligation not enumerated to the states. 
If it wasn't in there, it was up to the states to decide. That used to be the foundation of what was formerly known as the Republican Party. A pardon can only look backward and not forward. That means you can only wipe away past conduct, not future conduct. That only makes sense. Nothing can give a person the right to commit future crimes. Before Trump, the White House had a pardon attorney's office created by George H.W. Bush in 1981, which produced dossiers. No, not that dossier. Embedded applicants to determine who was worthy of such a privilege. All but two presidents issued pardons. Our first president, George Washington, pardoned two men who participated in the Whiskey Rebellion, which happened in 1794 when over 500 men attacked the home of the tax inspector. Our first tax was on distilled spirits, and that made folks pretty angry. Presidents Madison and Monroe pardoned people convicted of being pirates. You were a privateer if you robbed other ships with the permission of the government. Otherwise, you were a pirate. Andrew Jackson issued the first rejected pardon. The crime was robbing the U.S. mails. The convicted George Wilson rejected the pardon, and in United States v. Wilson, the U.S. Supreme Court held that a pardon had to be accepted by the person being pardoned. If the pardon is not accepted, it has no force or effect. Now remember that. Fast forward to Abraham Lincoln. He pardoned hundreds of Native Americans from the Dakota tribe for attacking white settlers in the Sioux City Uprising, which was also known as the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. That war resulted from the government breaching agreements with Native Americans. Ulysses S. Grant pardoned a gentleman convicted of the Comstock Act, a law which prevented one from using the U.S. mail to send obscenity, sex toys, letters with sexual content or information so no Cosmo for you, and contraceptives, and any substance that would induce a miscarriage or abortion. Two presidents issued no pardons. William Henry Harrison, who probably would have gotten around to it, but he died 31 days into his presidency, and James Garfield, who was assassinated six months into his presidency, and who also would have issued his share of pardons too. In our lifetimes, all presidents have issued pardons, some more controversial than others. For example, Ford pardoned Nixon after Nixon resigned, and Ford, as vice president, was sworn in as president. Nixon resigned to avoid the embarrassment of an impeachment. President Obama used his powers to commute the sentence of Chelsea Manning, a U.S. Army whistleblower, for providing classified documents to WikiLeaks. Remember WikiLeaks? For his part, Trump has been doing his best to live by the adage of, bad press is good press. His pardons include former Arizona Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was convicted of contempt of court for refusing to end the practice of immigrant roundups. Arpaio claims he is innocent, so in my mind, it's a question of whether the pardon was accepted, since an accepted pardon inherently means one has to admit guilt. You can't be pardoned for being innocent. Incidentally, President-elect Biden won Maricopa County by more than 45,000 votes, so it seems Trump's gander didn't pay off for him. He pardoned Lewis Scooter Libby, former Vice President Chief of Staff for Dick Cheney, and who was convicted of perjury and obstruction of justice for leaking CIA information. George W. Bush only commuted Libby's sentence of 30 months in federal prison after a failed appeal, but left the other parts of his sentence intact. Trump pardoned Rod Blagojevich, former Illinois governor, 
who was convicted of trying to sell former Illinois Senator and former President Barack Obama's U.S. Senate seat, vacated after President Obama resigned to serve as President of the United States. Trump pardoned his good pal and Nixon lover, Roger Stone, who was convicted of witness tampering, obstruction, and making false statements. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Trump's latest pardon is Michael Flynn. What makes the issue of Flynn's pardon interesting is that it may be an act in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy. Flynn was convicted by his own guilty plea, and we don't know everything because a lot of the information is sealed. We know from an unsealed memo that Flynn had been contacted by people from the administration or Congress, and that that contact could have had an impact on his willingness to cooperate with the special prosecutor or his willingness to provide complete information to the special prosecutor. We know what Flynn did was so serious that Judge Sullivan told Flynn he sold his country out. And Flynn was going to prison, encouraging Flynn to cooperate further. Congress has sought to limit pardon power. And the courts have ruled on the expansiveness of pardon power. But no case has addressed whether a pardon given by a possible co-conspirator is lawful. But can a person who engaged in certain behavior pardon another who helped hide that behavior or by committing a crime? Think of it this way. Can a judge who participated in a course of conduct dismiss the charges of a person who helped him engage in that course of conduct and lied to protect the judge? The answer to that is a resounding no. But that answer is based on the code of conduct for U.S. judges. In that code, judges are precluded from presiding over matters in which they have a conflict of interest. So it follows that someone who has a conflict of interest shouldn't be able to pardon another person, right? No such code exists for presidents. Members of Congress are subject to ethics rules. Executive branch employees are subject to ethics rules. The cabinet is subject to ethics rules. But the president and vice president are explicitly exempt from many of the ethics rules. In others, the rules are silent. I know. Why? Well, we seem to harbor under a belief that our election process would weed out people like Trump. And Alexander Hamilton and our other founding fathers fashioned a political tool, impeachment and removal, under the belief that members of Congress would have the balls to stand up to a president who is not fit for office. Indeed. As an aside, could anyone living in the vicinity of Trinity Church in Manhattan report in on whether they have felt Hamilton barrel rolling in his grave? You can drop me a line on Twitter at Tracy Explains. So here we are. Trump pardon Flynn by tweet. According to my fellow legal expert, Ben Wittes of lawfareblog.com, as of November 30th, Sidney Powell had yet to take any action to have the Flynn matter dismissed. It wasn't until later that afternoon that the pleading appeared in the court docket. So as we look forward to a new administration, no doubt there are many problems that need to be addressed. But maybe it's time to put some guardrails on the presidency by enacting some ethics rules putting down a bright line to hold presidents accountable. The idea isn't new. After John F. Kennedy appointed his brother attorney general, Congress enacted the Federal Anti-Nepotism Act. After Watergate, the 1978 Ethics Act, financial disclosure forms, special prosecutors, limits on political contributions, donor and campaign expenditure reports, and taxpayer campaign funding all became law. 
as did the Presidential Records Act of 1978, which was a law designed to protect presidential records from destruction. It was a law that took a long time to put in place, remembering that Nixon resigned on August 8, 1974. In the time, I'm coining BT, beyond Trump. Maybe, just maybe, we can lay down some rules to help clarify the fundamental principle that America is never to be ruled by a king, even if one in his own mind. As I stated earlier, I'm not twisting over Flynn's pardon. Instead, I'm focusing on the American people, who against the obstacle of a pandemic, elected an experienced and moral leader who had the fortitude to select a woman to be his running mate and vice president-elect. An experienced good human was elected with more votes than any presidential candidate in history, 80,059,448 and growing. I'm also thinking about the healthcare workers who walk into harm's way every day to take care of all of us. Please wear a mask so you are one less person they need to care for. Thanks for listening to this first episode of The Devil is in the Details. If you like what you heard and you want more, remember to click subscribe wherever you find your podcast. 